0: Before we begin, before we get deep into the weeds, before we get into the podcast, yeah, it's that time of the year again. It is Patreon time. You know, there are some benighted, fantastic people out there, John, who actually pay us for this gig. I know, and I'm genuinely, eternally grateful to them. But you know why they pay us? Not only do you get ad-free, lots of people don't like the ads, Yeah, but more importantly, you get to ask me questions every week. You get my Trinity courses. You get the audio of the Trinity courses. You get the visual of the Trinity courses. You get the book list of the Trinity courses. notes. You get the notes. You get the books. You get the whole shebang. So if you want a really proper, deeply, as they say, immersive experience in the (laughs) Dave McWilliams (laughs) podcast, sign up now in December for your annual membership on Patreon. You'll get a 15% discount if you sign up before the 1st of January. So you know what? You know those people who listen to this show and you think, what do I get them for a present? There you go. Get Dave McWilliams for a present.
1: (laughs) Dave McWilliams on a plate.
0: (laughs) On a plate. So it is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Happy Christmas.
2: Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort so you sleep better together.
0: To understand the economy, you have to understand human nature. This podcast is powered by ACAST. Dobro Dan, Dobro večer, Dobro Gospodinie, naše prijatelji. We are now <laughs> here to see our David McQueen's podcast, Postrava Divne Kipa that means we are now supporting the wonderful Croatian team.
1: We sure are. Yeah, we sure yeah, are. Yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. So moja slušamo, pričamo, hrvatski. Aide hrvatski. Come on, the nine legs. Exactly. The <laughs> Devit Nogu. The, the devit, devit Nogu. The Devit Nogu. So we are now uh, definitely, as listeners of the podcast, you'll know that I have a great affi- uh, I have a great affinity for and an affection for Croatia. And uh, it's just wonderful to see. It is. It just lifts the nation. It lifts a small nation yeah. when they're doing well. And their history for the last 20 years has not been great after the after the war yeah. in Yugoslavia. So many awful things happened. And the society, the country, still find it hard to get on their feet. Do you know they had a number one hit in the Croatian charts two summers ago, a, a song dedicated to Ryanair? Really? Because so many Croats live here. Right. We have given out 42,000 it was a good track. Wasn't it? it was not a particularly good track. It was a Croatian <laughs> rap track. Slightly, oh, man. Slightly, sort of, turbo. Slagging
1: it off, I hope.
0: Slightly turbo No, no, they loved Ryanair because oh, Ryanair yes. was there. It was like the, they're in the departure lounge going right. to Ireland. Ireland was the promised land for them. We've given out 42,000 PPI numbers to Croats in the last two years. Wow. 42, which is a huge amount. A huge amount. There's thousands of Croats here. Mm. They're only the registered fellows. What about the other fellows who aren't <laughs> registered? But, so we're going to support. Moje surce Yechovatskeye. Come on. Okay. Anyway, but today we're talking about a very serious thing. Okay, we're going to talk about the history. Remember we talked about frauds with Dan Davis? Yes. Right? Yeah, which is fascinating. Same sort of theme because what's emerging now, the economies are now moving towards recession. Mm. The credit cycle of the last 10 years has come to an end. But more interestingly, as I, I've talked about before, the 40-year cycle. Of lots of credit, financial markets doing well, bond markets doing well, yeah. owners of capital doing well. It's all apparently, or not apparently, it seems to me to be coming to a close and we're on to a new phase. Now, there is a legend in Wall Street, a guy called Jim Chanos, Yeah. And he is not only a legend in terms of his presence in Wall Street, but in what he's done. He is the short seller. He's the guy who goes and says, you know, you hear all those great stories about this company or this country. I'm not sure that's the case, right? And I have watched him for years and years. I've read him. He teaches at Yale when he's not operating. You know, he he's the difference between lots of people. You know, lots of people say, oh, that's going down. Yeah, that market's overvalued. He's the guy who bets against it. So just to give you a sense, John, right? Remember Enron? Yes. Yeah. He's the guy who shorted Enron. Wow. When everybody was saying Enron was the best thing since sliced bread, yeah. he said, no. He went in, he went into the company, he went into the accounts, and he said, no, this is a fraud. And he shorted it. This, week, steel, this week in Germany, there's a massive, massive fraud case. Wirecard, you've heard of them? Mm. He shorted them. Lookin' Coffee shorted them. These are all companies that have gone bust. Right. The Hertz Corporation shorted them. So, you know, Beyond Meat, a couple of years ago, everyone was talking about how we're all going to change. That's
1: right, yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: Shorted them. We just said, I'm calling BS on this. Wow, okay. Right? So he's the guy who actually has the balls to actually put money behind his bets. And what is he? He's like, like he researches and analyzes. He researches, he analyzes, he identifies. Yeah. Right, he calls bullshit. And he says, okay, you all think that this is going this way. It's too good to be true. Right, and he's been doing this successfully since the 1980s, 1990s, so a long, long, long time. And I'm a bit of a fanboy. This guy must have incredible insights, yeah, extraordinary insights. So, why don't we open up the podcast to the insights of Jim Chainos and let's go to New York? Now, over many, many years, I have been, as you all know, listeners. obsessed with cycles, the economy, the way it works, the intersection of credit cycles and investment cycles. And when money is deluged into economy, what actually happens? Probably because here in Ireland, we went through a bizarre credit boom-bust cycle in the last 10 or 15 years. And frankly, we're going through something broadly similar. Maybe not in the same magnitude, maybe not the same assets, but the same global effervescence is going on. And there's one man who has played the game of shorting the markets, a legend in Wall Street, of shorting markets, of identifying times when, you know what, maybe it's better not to go with the herd, to go against the herd, to short the herd. He is in the business, a man whose name is revered. I've just now heard off camera that he's a very good mate of Jim Sheridan's, he of The Name of the Father, and all sorts of other movies. We'll talk about that in a second. But Jim Chanos, it is great to have you on the
1: show. How are you? I'm so thrilled to be here. I'm also a big fan, so it's uh it's the mutual beneficial society. The mutual, the mutual. I, <laughs> I'm thrilled to be here. Thank you.
0: That's great, Jim. Now, Jim, I'm going to get straight into it, okay? Because lots of people will have heard of lots of listeners who have been following economics, but might not have worked in markets. Will have heard of short selling. They kind of a fairly good idea what it is. Tell us before we talk about where we are in the cycle, what you think of the macro world, what exactly does a short seller do? What do they see and how do they act on it?
1: So so let me begin, David, by just simplifying a little bit and saying that all kinds of businesses engage in short selling every day. And short selling is simply taking in money up front for goods and services to be performed later, uh, ideally at a profit. So, for example, uh, uh, an airline that sells you an advance purchase ticket uh, is, is short-selling you a seat. Uh, farmers who sell forward their crops for next year's harvest are, are short-selling those. They like today's price. They're willing to deliver it a year from now at an attractive price. Yes. That's a short sale. Probably the biggest short sale scheme in all of finance and business is insurance. Insurance companies take in premiums up front to pay out uh, in various different occurrences uh, in the future and then earn interest or income on that money uh, while they wait. So in the securities markets, um, short selling is essential for efficient markets if you go back to any of the, the academic theories behind markets, and that is that uninterested people uh, should be able to also set prices. So from an economist's point of view, that's the way to think about it. So just because uh, I, I don't own that car if I could short sell the car at a very crazy price and deliver it a year from now at a lower price, I should be able to do that. You can't do that in all markets. You can do it in the securities markets. Right. Okay. So in a short sale, I borrow the shares from a broker Yep. and with the the promise to pay those shares back in some unspecified time in the future. I sell them at 10x yep. and hopefully in the future buy back those shares at 5x and make the difference and, and and then return the borrow the shares and lock in a profit. Of course, the opposite can happen. And it, this these share price can keep going up and because share prices can go up infinitely, you can certainly lose a lot more money on a short sale than you can make theoretically. Yeah. Although as I've often said, I've seen a lot more stocks go to zero than infinity. So uh, there is that.
0: <laughs> now listen, let's let's how did you get into this business? How did you get into this because it is a a niche part, even though you say, and you're right, that in all markets, there's all sorts of ways of, of if you think a price is going down and it'll go down in the future, there's all sorts of ways of mitigating that risk. Okay. But in terms of your own game in the finance game, how did you decide, okay, that's where I'm going to get into? You know, I've done the, maybe yep. the, 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 the normal broking earlier on, I worked in a bank, or whatever, but actually, <laughs> this interests me.
1: Well, my adult children would say I was dropped on my head at birth, but I think it was probably a little bit more serendipitous than that. I was an analyst. I started out in investment banking. I I went over into the brokerage business, and I was a young analyst in Chicago in 1982, and I was asked to take a look at a a very aggressive, high-flying insurance company in the United States called Baldwin United. It was the old Baldwin Piano Company, and it had morphed into selling annuities and, and mortgage insurance and a variety of other things. And it was the fastest growing financial service company in the United States at that time. And it was an accounting fraud. And uh, I started looking into it and started digging into it. And uh, I put out a couple of research reports in the second half of 1982, telling people they should sell the stock or if they were aggressive, short the stock because of the things we had uncovered. And the company filed for bankruptcy in 1983. It was the largest financial bankruptcy in the U.S. up until that point. And I had no predisposition to be a short side research analyst, but our clients at this small firm said, "Okay, well, what else doesn't the kid like? (laughs) And at that point, the light bulb went on and I said, well, maybe I could carve out a niche doing this, you know, deep institutional research to the downside, looking for things that are flawed, as opposed to the 10,000, you know, analysts all looking for things to buy. And so I did that for a few years at Deutsche Bank. I I was hired away uh, and moved to New York. And uh, in 1985, the front page of the Wall Street Journal had a story about this evil group of short sellers who were de- destroying these fine American companies. And inside the Wall Street Journal was, was basically uh, one of those drawings of a kid throwing a, a pebble into a pond with the rings. And the outer ring was was institutional investors. And then the next ring in was hedge funds. And the next thing, ring in was traders. And then the, the, the final little entry point was short sellers. And I was the kid throwing the the pebble in. So my, uh, my boss in Frankfurt didn't really like that. And I was uh, called that morning and said, my contract would not be renewed at the end of 85. So uh, I uh, called up one of my clients and told them the bad news and they were, they were thrilled. They said, that's great. And I said, I don't really see what's so great about losing my job. They said, we're going to put you in business. And so, That's when I started my firm in the fall of 85. So it was a series of sort of serendipitous things that happened. And uh, I was very lucky.
0: So so to make you identify and and your team identifying over the years have identified companies or countries or let's say companies, right? And then we go on to countries, but let's say companies that you think, hold on a second, this story is too good to be true. There's something under the bonnet here that doesn't quite make sense.
1: Yeah. So, so the 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 ideal short sale, of course, is something that is not only overpriced but may have aspects of of fraud attached to it, and and those are the ones that everybody remembers. The companies like Wirecard and and more famously for us Enron, and there, of course, you know the the size of the frauds are massive in the tens of billions of dollars. But you know there there are broader aspects of things we've looked at now through the years, like. The credit system before the global financial crisis, the Chinese real estate market in the last ten years, that that are sort of more in your bellywack of, of of big macro themes that are you know that are disconcerting.
0: And now tell me, so what we do know is that we've had a massive, massive credit expansion since since 08 and then since the pandemic. So 08 and then all the way through to let's say nine, twenty nineteen. Then we get another panic. so. These events always emerge at the end of a credit cycle. Where yes. do you think we are now? What do you think all these frauds, all these companies that are falling to work, what are they telling us about the world?
1: Yeah. So I, I teach, us I think you know, a, a course on the history of financial market fraud. And one of the overarching themes, David, is, is that the fraud cycle follows the financial cycle and business cycle with a lag. So the longer the, the business and financial cycle goes on, the more people's sense of disbelief is eroded. They begin to believe things are too good to be true at the end. You have fear of missing out, you know, all the things you know. And, and so it becomes easier to, to basically get money from investors for all kinds of things that may or may not be true. And we're certainly starting to see the evidence now of that in this cycle. It always starts with a few instances, like the Theranos's, and the valley and pharmaceuticals in the US and then we saw wirecard in 2020 but now of course with the advent of crypto and the frauds we're seeing you know almost weekly you know surface there and i suspect it's going to get worse i mean i think we're going to see just this cycle in particular i've called it the golden age of fraud you know not only are we seeing just excesses in silicon valley but we're seeing excesses in accounting across corporate America, very similar to what we saw in the dot-com era. And I think that that's not going to end well for lots of reasons. And again, the longer the cycle and the more the credit impulse, as you've indicated, the worse the resulting revelations tend to be.
0: Now, I heard you say that, for example, you're short a company like Tesla, you know, which was the darling of the world. And, you know, uh, there was an all sorts of this is going to change the way battery technology, change the way cars are made, et cetera, et cetera. And you said, well, maybe not.
1: Well, I mean, it's that story. There's plenty of things that I could point to at Tesla that, that were statements have made that, that appear, shall we say, to be more than a bit of a stretch of the truth. But the simpler story at Tesla is it's a car company. And as much as Elon Musk will, will tell you it's not, but it's something much greater, robotics or robo-taxis or whatever, you... It's a car company. It's a very profitable car company, but it's a car company that, that sells very expensive cars and in particular sells very expensive cars in China, which is where it makes all its money. And I don't think people appreciate the China risk that this company has. And just to put it in perspective, I think you know this, but Tesla for the last few years now has had a market value equal to all the other publicly traded car companies combined. Yeah, um, and, and of course, it, it sells just a fraction of those cars that the rest do combine. So, every every bull market has a hopes and dreams kind of stock where where people project onto a real business things that it can never do. And it was it was Cisco back in in among others back in the dot com era, for example. And Cisco was a fine company. It made routers. It was profitable. But but by the end, when the stock went parabolic in 2000, people thought it was going to produce all the hardware for the internet. And and the same thing with Tesla. It's the hopes and dreams retail stock of this bull market. And uh, it, it will survive. It will produce cars. But it is not worth $500 billion, or wherever it is right now, $600 or whatever billion. It
0: is, yeah, or whatever it is, yeah. whatever it is. And tell me, I want to talk to you about China risk, because I found your analysis of the Chinese... Well, just the intersection of where Chinese politics the Chinese banking system the Chinese yeah. credit cycle and of course most evident the Chinese housing boom bust cycle which is now materially obvious to to people tell me how you think this plays out or material obviously to some people tell me how it all plays out and, and why did you think hold on a second and this was a couple of years ago you said, wait a sec this doesn't this doesn't stack up
1: yeah yeah it wasn't it, it was a lot more controversial when we we started calling it out back in 2010. People thought we were crazy. And look, it, it is an economic model that is just fraught with danger. But it's so interesting from an economics point of view, because it, as you know, it's a closed system. And so it, it really is this, this this really unique laboratory is how long can a, a developed and, and increasingly large economy depend on investment for almost 50 percent of GDP? I mean, it's unprecedented, yes, right? It is unprecedented. I mean, we yes. saw the a- Asian tigers in the mid-'90s combined had, had investment you know, in the mid-'30s, 34 35% for four or five years, and that collapsed. And of course, Japan in the late-'80s got up to around 30% for a number of years, and that, that collapsed. Well, China has been at 43 to 48% for the better part of 15 years. And um, yeah, and that's the, and the amount of
0: money. When you see those sort of headline figures, the amount of money that's been wasted, been misallocated, been even fraudulently absorbed into the system, but it's just like that—that that is a massive, massive red flag.
1: Well, it's, it's 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 interesting because, of course, the idea always was, well, it was going to transition into a consumption of society. However, you can't repress consumption as the Chinese have to do because even way back in my macroeconomic class I remember that S equals I, right? Yeah. Saving has to equal investment. And so the Chinese people have to save to pay for all of to put the bank deposits so that the banks can lend money for all this investment. And as long as you never write anything off and you you pretend this fiction that the banking system is solvent, you're fooling yourself on GDP. Yeah, I joke that China's the only advanced economy that knows its annual GDP on January 1st of that year, because they're going to plan enough investment to make the numbers. And the model, really, it's the the accounting tail wagging the economic dog, because until perhaps recently, they were so obsessed with GDP that they would do anything to hit those numbers. No matter how uneconomic, at the end of the day, in terms of real wealth, it
0: was. No, no, I remember that. It was like seven percent or bust at all, at all costs. You know, but actually, so for example, many many listeners will have experienced the a very very mini but traumatic version of that in Ireland, which is it was a nexus of government getting lots and lots of easy tax money from a building boom that was going through the roof. The banking system was growing at ridiculous uh, on, a, on a, what should be a very basic business. You're lending money, okay? So it should be a very basic growth rate. It was getting, you know, all its accolades, all its chief executives were appear, appearing at Davos talking about climate change, all that sort of malarkey, okay?
1: And you <laughs> well, think- David, I can tell you a personal story Your some of your Irish listeners may or may not appreciate, but I was taking my daughter throughout uh, through Ireland, through Dublin, and then the UK to visit universities. She, she ended up at University of Edinburgh. I wanted her to go to Trinity, but we, 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 when we landed in Dublin, we had a lovely gentleman pick us up at the airport and takes to our hotel. And, uh, you know, there, there were, there were construction everywhere. This was 2006, I believe. Oh, right. Yeah, 2006. absolutely. 2006. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was the height of the height of the tiger. Yeah, And, uh, I, I said, oh, but, you know, I've heard about all this construction activity. He said, oh, it's amazing. He goes, I, I, I own four buildings myself. <laughs> I mean it's the very right. rare They'll those kind of anecdotes hit you over the head. Yeah, yeah. But yeah. but that, that's that's a true story. By my, my driver owned four buildings. I mean, this was oh five, oh six. Yeah. No, and, no, uh, that was
0: true. So can you imagine now how many of those stories are being told in China or were being told in China or still maybe been told in parts of China yeah. up to this day?
1: Well, most most apartments now that are flat, you know, the thing about China is of course is an awful lot of the, the flats are empty, but they're owned. They, they were sold. Yes. They were sold as investments, and so um, it, it's it's. Although they may be vacant, they the the deed transferred, and many families own two or three flats, um, and so it is uh, it is seen as as a store of wealth, um, and again, it's it's a very real estate centric economy, um, which is ironic because this all really happened when people could actually own leaseholds in nineteen ninety eight or ninety nine. So. There isn't a long history of property ownership, of course, in, in uh, the People's Republic of no, China. No,
0: absolutely not. I mean, you know, if you think that owning property was illegal uh, up yeah. until the last And generation. you still can't
1: own the land. The state owns all the land.
0: Yeah, but you own the property. I mean, how does it, like, how, how does it end? You know, I mean, we, we've seen how it ends in Ireland. It ends with a massive internal default, uh, yeah. sometimes an external default. The government might decide not to default externally. So in effect, it allows the people to default on themselves. And yeah. uh, how do you think it ends in China? As long
1: as the banking system can keep it, keep all the plates spinning in the air, it it will it will hold up. I mean, so that's why they're so terrified of bank runs, and um, you know because it, it all goes through, everything in China goes through the bank commercial banking system, and that's an important thing to understand. Even when companies issue bonds, for example, most of the buyers are commercial banks. Right. So the we keep a close eye on the commercial banking system. And for years now, it has grown faster than nominal GDP. Assets have grown faster than nominal GDP because basically it's Ponzi finance, right? They're lending yeah. on new projects, but they're also lending on old projects so you can pay their interest back. And that cannot last. I mean, so I'll give you a very good set of numbers that will bring this home. So when China had its last banking crisis, uh, before it entered the WTO in 2000 in 2001, uh, most of the bad loans in the banking system were to state-owned enterprise, you know, big conglomerate sure. businesses. And uh, the Chinese economy was roughly 1 trillion US GDP. And the Chinese banking system had 1 trillion in in uh, in loans, of which 400 billion were bad. And they, wow. it took them quite a while to restructure that. They had to write some off over time. They did these asset management companies who are sort of state-backed to issue debt to buy the debt debt from the banks, and there was a lot of a lot of stuff that kind of had to be worked out over time. Well, fast forward to today, the Chinese economy is about fourteen trillion U.S. Yep, and the banking system is pushing sixty trillion.
0: Okay, so basically China. so as we so China, you know, used to be a country with a banking system. It's now a, a yeah, banking yeah, exactly. system with a country stuck onto it.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's massive, and and the real estate economy dwarfs everything. It's it's anywhere but 20, 20 to thirty percent of GDP is residential real estate construction and and activity, relative services and whatever. And you know that's multiples of any other advanced economy, and um, that's just residential. That's before the infrastructure investment and the commercial investment. So. This, I I always joke, China's just one big construction site. And it's really quite true.
0: And of course, it's one big construction site that now has a dear leader who's got in for a third uh, unelected term. What you're saying, though, so is that internally, unless the Chinese continue to bail out their banking system, which they may well do by taking resources from elsewhere, this is a country that just goes bust.
1: Well, and and one of the there's one other little twist that's worth monitoring, and that is for years the Chinese have encouraged Western capital to come in, you know, to help uh, in these process, right? But but of course, in the last few years, that's become problematic because Western investors have been burned by the the, the VIE structure that China uses to to get Western capital. And I, I don't want to get too much in the weeds right now, but but basically. If you are a Western investor in, in stocks or bonds, in Chinese entities, you don't own the underlying assets. You don't have a claim on the assets inside the People's Republic. You have shares or debt on a British Virgin Island or Cayman so, Island. Yeah, some special company.
0: vehicle, which is...
1: Right. Yeah. And, and your asset is a, is a contract sitting in a safe that says you will share in the economics in some unspecified way in, in a proportion pursuant to this agreement. And and so there was, it was wonderful. The only problem is the Chinese courts do not recognize the VIE structure. So it was the best of all worlds for the Chinese. They, they told Western investors, come on in, buy our stocks and bonds, but you don't really have any claim on, on anything inside our borders. And wow. that is, that is a, a, a really amazing development that doesn't get enough press as it should. But Western creditors now in a bunch of the real estate developers who are struggling, they're finding out that their bonds are trading at five cents on the dollar, three cents on the dollar because they have no claim on the on the real estate inside the People's Republic. And so it's it's an amazing story really, at, at how the Chinese worked that and worked Western investors into providing marginal capital for them.
0: But it's also the story we come back to the to the dream idea of the moment. So the dream idea, we talk about Tesla being the dream idea of a certain of a certain sector. China was also this dream idea in the same yeah. way that Japan was in the 1980s, in yeah. the same way that arguably, it, it, in the, even the small case of Ireland, Anglo-Irish Bank was or whatever. There was this sense that, you know, we had reinvented the wheel. And I want to come back because to your Yale course, which I was reading last night, it's a course I would absolutely love because my, as as listeners in the podcast know, my major obsession is economic history, is stuff that happened in the past. I love I love the South Sea bubble. I love Talleyrand, I love John Law, I love the railway, you know, boom busts. You know, as I've always said, there must be a railway, there was a railway boom bust in Ireland. The amazing thing about Ireland was during the famine, when the western half of the country was starving, the eastern part of the country, a part of the eastern part of the country around here in Dublin, was actually involved in a speculative mania on railway shares. So yeah. it, it's amazing, you know, we, we never we never think about this. But let's just talk about just the big historical sweep of the stuff that you are interested in and where it all sits? Because th- th- what we're talking about is human behavior, really.
1: Yeah. And and so, well, there, there's a few themes in the class. We mentioned one already. Another one is that the truly devastating frauds are the state-sponsored fraud, uh, financial fraud. So we start the class basically with, with John Law in France. Yeah, I have it and, here. And I have, I have it. Bubble.
0: I have it here. Okay.
1: So <laughs> and the South Sea Bubble, which amazingly took place only nine months later in London, after the after the London finance world had laughed about the French and and and, and said about how silly the French were to believe this guy Law, and then they went and did the same thing themselves uh, in in London less than a year later. But those were those were based on on monopoly. Concessions with the New World, and, and it was the ultimate, ultimate big picture story, right? Yeah. What What was greater than than doing trade with these two continents that you had just discovered, right? That that you were going to pull gold and silver out and tobacco, and 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 so it captivated, you know, two two great powers, uh, the Fran- the French and the English. One of the interesting things was how the aftermath was treated. The French turned their back on capitalism after it happened and kind of shrugged their shoulders and said. Eh, what are you going to do? Everybody's a crook. We should have known better. And, and went back to their same money printing ways, which actually brought them to ruin 70 years later. The English, interestingly, went the other way. They actually threw a lot of the promoters into the tower, took all their money, prosecuted the boards of directors and, and, and cut back on speculative stock trading, but said, OK, we've got to learn our lesson and change the rules, but, but still understand that capitalism is important. And of course, that was the right decision. We saw it with the railroads in the UK, and I, I'm finding out now in Ireland in the 1830s and 1840s, the US in the 1870s. There it was the the, the uh, Credit Mobile scandal, which was the Enron of the 19th century. That was state-sponsored. That was the US government building the Transcontinental Railroad and being defrauded by the Union Pacific Railway execs. So it, it depends. And the really interesting thing is, what happens after these waves? You know, after, after the 1920s, we had a really strict change, particularly in the States. We had the, the SEC come in. We had new laws. We, we really tightened things up, the banking system, Glass-Steagall. But after the global financial crisis, we didn't do much of anything. And so it's interesting. We were much more aggressive after the banking crisis of the 80s, the S&L crisis. 3,000 bankers went to jail. And the dot-com era, which brought us Enron and Tyco and WorldCom, where lots of people went to jail. and We changed the accounting rules. But after the global financial crisis, everybody looked and said, well, I guess I lied on my mortgage application, too. We're all in on it. Let's, let's just kind of forget about it.
0: But, but this is where I want, to, I want to conclude. I want to finish this, Jim. So, 08, oh, there was, let's forget about it. Let's pump the system up again. Let's have a couple of show trials. But frankly, you know, yeah. let's just Although leave.
1: not in Iceland. Not in Iceland, not uh, in Iceland, exactly. Interestingly, one of the more aggressive places, they actually went after people.
0: But they they also, the Icelandics kind of outdid themselves. I remember going to see West Ham United, one of the great London clubs, at a time when they'd been bought by an Icelandic geezer who decided that there was, speaking of tall tales and yarns, that if he could tell the story that in some way he was the reincarnation of Leif Eriksson, the Viking, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> okay, I jest you not. I jest you not. I know the Icelandic bank guys were <laughs> they, amazing. They were amazing. So they came up with this yarn. So the the great yarn in Ireland was people don't understand it. Irish banking is called relationship banking. Now, if you break down relationship, it means your friends. It means your mates. Yeah. So basically, Irish banking is we give our mates money, right? You look the other way, that's our business model. And they'd say they'd say, oh, all these people with their obsession with numbers, they don't understand that Irish banking is, it's, it's almost like we see it in our heart. It's like when De Valera was asked about the Irish people, he says, I look into my heart and I see what the Irish people want, right? Same sort of stuff, right? The Icelandics, <sighs> well, God bless them, came up with this Leif Erikson, the guy who discovered the United States, the, Nor- the yeah. Norseman, right? And they said that deep in our DNA is a pioneering Vikings, sort of, pushing the boundaries. We were always traders. We were always the people. Oh, we traded with Constantinople and Greenland. And we used to trade well, in ivory and tusks of walruses and all that stuff. Yeah, so I'm yeah. sitting in West Ham making a documentary about this, talking to the dude, thinking to myself, this is, it's television gold, but it's bunker stuff. <laughs> and of course, what he wanted was, his obsession was, to get an Icelandic centre-forward plane for West Ham. Uh, That was the the business strategy.
1: Well, as we know, fortune favours the brave, David. Um, By the way, I remember getting a friend of mine showing me a brochure for a new development in Constanta, Romania in 06, on the Black Sea, not far from... Istanbul, Constantinople, yeah, and the two lenders. One was, I think, Allied Irish, and the other was one of the big Icelandic banks. I... At <laughs> a beachside resort in Romania. Oh, listen, yep.
0: I, well, I can. We can tell you. We can go on all night about about Romania and Bulgaria. But yeah, when 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 guys who are brought up in Fermoy and Trali are out in Constanza on the Black Sea <laughs> with an encyclopedic knowledge of the real estate market there and lending not to Romanians. But to other people from Tralee yeah. and Fermanagh, yeah, yeah.
1: right? Yeah. Oh, this was being marketed in, uh, elsewhere in the EU. Yeah. Oh,
0: yeah, it was marketed in Ireland. It was marketed in Ireland. <laughs> I'm sure it was. Yeah. 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 But let's let's but let's let's conclude, Jim, because I I love all this stuff. Right? Maybe this time it's different. Maybe what we're witnessing now, after the massive expansion since the pandemic, maybe you know the SPACs, the cryptos, the this, that, yeah. and the other this world, that there may well come a moment where the government say hold on a second we're not going to react to this like 8 oh, wait we're not going to look the other way and pump the system again in actual fact we might change our view of the form of capitalism the form of finance that has emerged in the same way as they did in the 1930s
1: well wall street better hope not because that response in which we we got further into the idea of political economy That response, which might say, you know what, we are going to put some shackles on capital because it has just acted so badly in the last 25 years. And we're going to emphasize labor again. So I always tell the story that for two summers, I worked while I was in university in a steel mill in my hometown of Milwaukee, Wisconsin. I was making $14 an hour as a union employee in 1979. Wow. That was the peak of the U.S. labor force, was 1979 in terms of real wages. And, you know, the 70s, from 1966 to 82, the S&P and the Dow dropped almost 90% in real terms, and the bond market was destroyed. The real economy actually didn't do so badly. The nominal GDP and real GDP grew pretty nicely over that period, but almost everybody on Wall Street lost their jobs. And of course, that was part of a a longer wave from from 1929 to 1979, where basically you had much more government involvement. You had an emphasis on labor, you had an emphasis on real wages, uh, you had an emphasis on unemployment. And Wall Street was an afterthought. And if, if Wall Street did okay, fine. But but it was the financial markets were not the be-all and end-all of policy. That changed in 79 and 80 with the advent of Thatcher and Reagan, I think. And the pendulum, which had gone, you know, to the point where I was making $14 an hour at, at 20 years old in a steel mill you know, began to move toward capital and capital gains rates were cut. We needed to do uh, interest rates, of course, declined dramatically. When I got on Wall Street in 1980, rates were 14%. And the S&P was trading at seven times earnings. And so that has done nothing but but just go further for a better part of, of 45 years now. And if something has changed, whether it's the advent of inflation for the first time in years or just a sense of, of the public having enough or whatever you, that is something I, I tell my friends on Wall Street, you're not prepared for, because if that pendulum goes the other way, it will go the other way, you know probably for some, some meaningful period of time, economic populism, if you will. And that won't treat financial markets well. The overall economy might do just fine. But the financial economy, which has boomed to, to multiples of the real economy, you know, in our lifetimes, you know might have a have, have
0: rougher weather because Jim, this is exactly where I, where I want to take this because it it seems to me that if you if you value your history and if you value exploring and reading about those moments where public opinion shifts and villains emerge who were heroes not that long prior to the shift yeah. in public opinion, the legal system shifts, the feel of the society shifts. When I look at the United States, and I, I, I when the last time I was there was a couple of weeks ago, I was in New York, and I you just get this feeling of, of a society on the edge that something big. When I say something big, in the political economy, could well materialize that would change decades of policy, and some part right. of me feels that you know, watching these 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 crypto bros, these tech bros, these the, the, that that edifice which was really the the sort of the, the glittering prize of the end of a credit boom watching those guys not just have feet of play but possibly have criminal charges against them
1: oh Maybe. very much and and criminality changes things i mean it it changed things slightly after the enron occurrence and again when it's criminality that that is obvious and more focused the gfc was interesting because again if you remember the fbi put out its warning in 2005 in the us that everybody was engaged in mortgage fraud right people were lying on their applications they wanted to buy bigger houses. yeah. Uh, and, and Don't, that had don't worry, lot. we
0: did that thing here too. That <laughs> Yes, yeah, yeah, exactly.
1: It was global. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and yeah. so that had a lot to do with the outrage being diffused, but despite a fair amount of wrongdoing in, in the banks themselves and the accounting in the banks. But if you get a, a, a 1929 or a 19 post.com type thing where you begin to, the, the public gets to be kind of outraged by what they see, then you get political change, right? And then you get the central bank's beginning to worry politically as well. And it's fascinating. One other aspect of this that is worth watching and, and, and post-pandemic, and that is the austerity that a lot of Western governments had in the last 40 years, relatively, uh, went out the window post-COVID, right? So yeah. we, we saw $5 trillion in stimulus directly to the U.S. economy trillion to households in 2020 and 2021, that is $15,000 per household of basic checks that went out. And it's going to be interesting come the next real recession, what the impetus will be from the public, because if you sent me a check for COVID, why aren't you sending me a check now? And were the floodgates open fiscally and, and how will central banks react to that now that we we see that that kind of thing can lead to higher prices? And what will be the political response? Because we now have opened that Pandora's box of, of just almost unlimited stimulus to the public in, in times of trouble. And uh, that was not the case after the GFC. No, I mean, the totally. stimulus, the GFC was very de minimis.
0: Well, actually, the GFC was the opposite. In actual fact, yeah, it's said to the the local dudes who'd never actually involved themselves in the business of stocks and shares. Actually, it's your fault. You guys take the flack. and we so. But but I absolutely so. What you're saying is the appetite for bigger government,
1: bigger government,
0: yeah. In the next decade, is there particularly
1: in the U.S. Yeah,
0: fascinating stuff.
1: You know, the blinkers may be off there. We'll see, but. it's worth noting because it was those those aggressive stimulus programs were passed bipartisan, and And for all the political wrangling in the U S about with the Democrats and Republicans, remember that the biggest spending bills that have happened in U S history have happened on a, on a overwhelming bipartisan basis.
0: That's because they see which way the wind is blowing. So Jim, fantastic, wonderful stuff. And I hope to see you here in
1: June. I'm a big fan. So, Thank you so much for having me. Happy holidays, and I hope to see you in Ireland uh, this summer.
2: When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a -a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door.
0: so John there you have Jim talking about China amazing stuff that was incredible stuff talking about looking at companies finding companies that are frauds Mm. that everyone thinks are amazing basically saying you know Tesla it's a car company makes cars and it's like you know forget all that sort of stuff and if it makes cars lots of other people make cars but fascinating at the end there talking about how looking back at history there are pivotal moments when the world changes. When you get these frauds, when you get the short sellers coming in, when you get the markets falling, when you get people reassessing the whole political economy. And he's saying, after the global financial crisis in 2008, Mm. it was like, well, business as usual. What Jim is saying just now, he's saying, maybe not. Maybe the next five years, the pendulum will swing completely politically as a result of criminal behavior which will change public opinion. We're going to come back over the next couple of weeks. Absolutely. We've got a lot to talk about there. But We'll see you on Thursday. Take care. Well, it's that time of the year again. It is Patreon time. You know, there are some benighted fantastic people out there John who actually pay us for this gig
1: I know and I'm genuinely eternally grateful to them
0: but you know why they pay us not only do you get ad free lots of people don't like the ads yeah but more importantly you get to ask me questions every week you get my Trinity courses you get the audio of the Trinity courses you get the visual of the Trinity yeah. courses you get the book list of the Trinity courses the notes you get the notes you get the books you get the whole shebang so if you want to read proper, deeply, as they say, immersive experience in the Dave McWilliams (laughs) podcast. Sign up now in December for your annual membership on Patreon. You'll get a 15% discount if you sign up before the 1st of January. So, you know what? You know those people who listen to this show and you think, what do I get them for a present? There you go. Get Dave McWilliams for a present.
1: (laughs) Dave McWilliams on a (laughs)
0: plate. On a (laughs) plate. So it is patreon.com forward slash David McWilliams. Happy Christmas.